hiring people by their demonstrated capabilities instead of what they boast on their resumes. It's catching on at executive branch agencies. It even has a name, Subject Matter Expert Qualification Assessment, or SMEQA. It turns out the government publishing office over on the congressional side of government has been hiring people this way for years and with what it considers great success. Here with more, the GPO's chief human capital officer, Dan Melke. Mr. Melke, good to have you on. Good morning, Tom. Thank you for having me back on. Tell us how you have been going about hiring people and where did it all start and tell us how the process works. You didn't call it SMEQA. That came from the other branch, right? That's correct, Tom. So four to five years ago, we started using selective placement factors. And selective placement factors are two to three things that the candidate needs to know, you know, the first day on the job. And that could be, for example, with a social media expert, that they have to be able to conduct social media analytics to make better business decisions. So in order to use selective placement factors and just a little background on selective placement factors, the candidate at that point is either in or out. So if they meet the selective placement factors, they're still in consideration. If they do not meet the selective placement factors, they're no longer considered. So we had to use subject matter experts to make that determination. So we started using subject matter experts in that way three to four years ago. And what the USDS and OPM did was really give us a lot of different options using that SMEQA process that we hadn't really been able to use. Interesting, because let me just ask a devil's advocate question. What if someone strikes you as a fantastic learner? great personality, someone that could fit in well with the organization, maybe someone that meets diversity goals that you have, but they don't have the specific technical knowledge. They're ruled out? Well, that's a good question. Yes, if you do use selective placement factors, they would be ruled out. Yes. So therefore, would it be fair to say that you have to be selective in the positions for which you choose to use the selective placement factors? Yes, Tom. For example, Selective placement factors are generally used at what you would consider the expert level. In our case, we have a lot of craft trades, so that would be the journey person level. So it wouldn't be used for entry-level type positions or maybe even mid-level type positions because there you are looking for potential, where at the expert level, you're expecting the candidate to come in if they're selected and start being able to perform working in that job the next day. Got it. All right. So tell us how this got started. That is to say, which job function, which area of GPO that it started with? Well, we started with we had to hire a social media expert and we only have one. And of course, it has to be a really good hire. So our public relations officer kind of we had a discussion and we determined to use selective placement factors. And it was a fairly easy conversation. I sat down and asked him one simple question. What are two to three things this individual needs to know to come in and start doing this job on the very first day? We wrote those three things down, made those selective factors. The hiring manager then selected a subject matter expert to go over the resumes of the candidates. And, you know, we established a criteria to determine who met the selective placement factors. And once the SME made that determination, the hiring manager was able to receive the certificate of eligibles or cert list. 
and they were able to make a selection off of that. And we were extremely happy with the individuals that made the cert list. As a matter of fact, the hiring manager told me that it was probably the first list they'd got that they would have probably hired anyone off the list. And I believe we had six candidates on that list for that one job. And we made the selection and we're extremely happy and we're happy to also say that the individual that was selected is still with our agency. We're speaking with the GPO's chief human capital officer, Dan Melke. So in other words, it's almost like a baseball team hiring a second baseman. You want someone maybe that's played second base. Yes, sir. That's a good analogy. And again, this is for those expert positions, the positions where you expect the individual to come in with the experience and knowledge and expertise that they have to start doing the job day one. It took us a while to kind of get there because when you look at OPM's guidance on using SMEs, they say, well, you can't train them up within a certain amount of time. Well, we all know when someone comes on board in the federal government, there's a training curve no matter what. Agencies use different systems. Just for example, there's training that has to be done for folks to enter their time and attendance in the time and attendance system that the agency is using. So there's a lot of training just to get the new hire kind of up to speed on the agency and the agency culture and the strategic plan. What you don't really want to be doing with folks that are supposed to be experts in the field is trying to train them to do the job that you hired them for. So this is a really good way, like you said, to find out can they play second base, right? Now, we also use other types of assessments, too. So we really kind of rounded it out to using selective placement factors for those positions where we need those experts to come in, using SMEs to determine if, in fact, those individuals have that expertise. And then we do other assessments as well, and one that we've had a lot of success with is a work sample assessment. So work sample assessment is something that the candidates would be expected to do within the first couple weeks on the job. Now, I mentioned we hire trades a lot. So one of our shops has had great success because when we hire machinists for the agency, they really have to be able to do three things. They have to be able to do computer-aided machine work. They have to be able to fix electrical, mechanical print equipment. And they also have to be able to weld. You know, that's three skill sets in one. And that was an extremely hard position to fill. So what we started doing was a work sample assessment. So we'll bring in those top candidates and they'll go through and they'll conduct a work sample assessment in machining. They'll conduct a work sample assessment in electrical mechanical repair. And then they'll also be required to weld. And with that process, what we've really been able to do with this entire process really is improve the quality of candidates on the cert list that gets issued to the hiring manager to interview and make selections from. And that has resulted in less reposting of positions because we didn't get good candidates. And it also has resulted in, which the State Department mentioned in your interview with them, is us being able to keep that cert list. And again, this is one thing that USDS and OPM did during their pilot that's a real game changer. We're allowed to keep that cert list for longer than 60 days. And that was kind of the norm before they went through this pilot. A field like welding, you know, hasn't changed all that much in six months or maybe 60 years. So there's no reason to have to start over from scratch the next time. Well, let me ask you this. Suppose you have a position, I don't know what it might be, but 
you don't already have an SME in the agency to hire. Can you go to another agency that does have those people and use them to help you develop those selective placement factors? Yes, sir. As a matter of fact, I served as an SME for another agency when they wanted to hire a workforce development director because that was my position prior to becoming the Chico. And I was glad to help them out. The hiring process in the federal government has become very long and complicated, and there's a lot of reasons that's happened. So for us, it's about finding solutions to work within this, because to change regulation, to change law, takes a long time. But, you know, you can find solutions to work, and that's what the SMEQA process is about. And like I mentioned, I'm glad to help other agencies if they don't have an SME on staff to help them make that selection. And in the thousands of pages, I don't know how many it is, of guidance that the Office of Personnel Management offers on hiring, was this in there all the time and nobody ever bothered to use it? Or is this new cloth here? Well, it was in there. Selective placement factors was in the Delegated Examining Handbook, subject matter experts, and assessments. The guidance was in there. But what the SMEQA process was, was it went and looked at the guidance, and they said, well, here's some things that we can do to really enhance that. So prior to that, we weren't really clear, could the SMEs conduct a telephone interview with the candidates? Now it's very clear that that can be done. And that's a game changer for us. Another thing they've done that's a real game changer in hiring is, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but it's a progressive hurdle assessment. It's still fairly complicated, but to kind of summarize it, you have different assessments, all right? So you'll have the SME assessment, and there can be two parts of the SME assessment. And then you may want to do a work sample assessment. So each time you have an assessment, there's a hurdle that they have to get over to continue to be considered for the position. And I think that's a game changer for us because if you go back to the self-assessment, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for folks to exaggerate their skill set, or maybe they, they actually think their skill sets are at that level. And then if you just go to an interview, it's really hard to tell because if the self-assessment and the resume match and the individual comes in and does a good interview, how do you really know they can do the job? So everything that they've done here has really given us the ability to kind of go through and see, can they do the job? Now, what's really great about this is also, for example, OPM has USA Hire, which are online assessments that you can build right into the job announcement. So you can actually start there as kind of the first hurdle for folks to get over. And the good thing about that is it takes about an hour to do the online assessment. So a lot of what I think OPM used this term, casual appliers, In other words, folks that just kind of go in and maybe mark all E's on a self-assessment and drop their resume in there, they're not really interested in applying to those because they would actually have to take an online assessment. And of course, if they don't pass, they automatically get bumped out at that point. There's a lot of good things that's come out of the selective placement factors, subject matter experts, and the other assessments that we can use. And under the progressive hurdle assessment then, If you have multiple openings, perhaps someone applying for opening A might only make it to the 12th progressive hurdle or the fourth progressive hurdle. You could still have a job for them at another level, 
but maybe not the level they applied for, and everybody's happy if they decide to accept. Yes, that is exactly right. Tom, I would say we're not there yet, but it's certainly something we're working on. And GPO is a agency with a very specific purpose, and it has a electromechanical, as you mentioned, component to it, a production, bookbinding, you name it, facility, plus some policy work. And you're mid-sized as far as federal agencies go. Does this process work for agencies that are gigantic, tiny, and those that may not have that physical, electromechanical, welding, printing, binding need also? Well, that's a very good question, Tom. The actual SMEQA process, and I've actually had this conversation with the experts over at USDS that work with OPM to design and pilot this. For mid-sized to small-sized agency, it is somewhat of a time-intense and personnel-intense process. So what we've been able to do, though, as a mid-sized agency is kind of use those things out of the process, pull the things out of the process that really work for us and enhance our ability to produce a better cert list for the hiring managers, which results in better hiring decisions and retention as well. Dan Melke is Chief Human Capital Officer at the Government Publishing Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing We were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks Um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do black communities experience and to phrase it in a way, not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for black and brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.